Well, this is week number 12. And uh, as I said, it doesn't look like we're going to get through the book of Genesis in 12 weeks, does it? We haven't even gotten to uh, Noah's flood. We haven't gotten to uh, the Tower of Babel, the four interesting characters. I knew I was in trouble when we spent so long on creation. But I think this is different than the book of Revelation. If you missed one or two in the book of Revelation, so many of you thought, well, I'm behind. It doesn't matter. Well, here in the book of Genesis, I'm not encouraging this, but you can miss two or three weeks, still come. It's not like you're behind. You can just pick it up where we're at. So I encourage you to just hang with us. Uh, I'll try and get through the book of Genesis just as quickly as I can. Well, last week, we began studying the curse in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And as I told you last week, even though we refer to this as the curse, singular, in reality, there are several curses that are involved, plural. You have the curse on the animal kingdom, the curse on the serpent, the curse on the woman, the curse on Adam and his descendants, and even the curse on the earth itself. So there is not just one curse, but there are several curses affecting just about everything and everyone. And we want to look at every one of the curses. We want to look at each one individually. Now, last week, we started with the serpent. And if you remember, the serpent was cursed above all of the other animals. Look at verse number 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now underline that word above. Above is translated from the Hebrew word men. And in this context it's used as a comparative. It means more than. So what this is telling us is that all of the animals were cursed as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Not just the serpent. But the serpent was cursed more than all of the other animals. So part of the curse was that the snake would be forced to crawl on its belly. The other part of the curse was that it would eat dirt. In other words, it would be forced to eat its prey, its food, directly off of the ground because it has no hands or limbs to actually lift its prey up off of the ground. Now, Isaiah chapter 65, verse number 25 tells us that during the millennium, the curse on the animal kingdom is going to be lifted with one exception. What is that exception? The serpent. Turn to Isaiah 65, 25. It says, the wolf and the lambs will feed together. Why will they feed together? Because everything's going to be restored to the way it was before the fall, just like it was in the Garden of, Adam Eden, in the Garden of, of Eden. Now, what's interesting is when you go back and look, at how animals acted and reacted before the fall, they all ate the grass, the herbs. They weren't carnivores. But after the fall, they became carnivores. So what we find is everything's going to be restored to the way it was before the fall with one exception. Notice what it says. The lion will eat hay like a cow. But the snakes, and this is what's good, eat dust. In those days, no one will be heard or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, why won't the curse be lifted off of the snakes during the millennium? Well, two reasons. Number one, because the serpent allowed Satan to use its body as an instrument to bring sin into the world. And number two, because the snake represents Satan. Now, I want you to remember that because that's very important. The reason that Satan chose to use the snake was because it's cunning, it's sneaky, and it's venomous, just like him. For that reason, from this point on, 
The serpent will represent Satan. Don't forget that because as we continue to read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible will continually refer to Satan as that old serpent. So don't forget that. From verse 15 on, the serpent represents Satan. So let's talk about verse 15. Scholars refer to verse number 15 as protovangelium or the protovangelium. How many of you have ever heard of that term? Anyone? Have one here? Anyone else? That's probably not a term that you would hear every day, but if you went to Bible college or if you went to seminary, you would hear that quite frequently. The word protovangelium actually means the first record of the gospel. You see, the word protovangelium is transliterated from a Greek compound word. Now, you've become, been coming here enough to know that a compound word is simply a word that's made up of more than one word. In this case, it's made up of two words. The Greek word protos, which means first, and the root word euangelion, which means gospel. Now, when you combine these two words, it literally means first record of the gospel. Now, why is Genesis chapter 3.15 referred to as the first record of the gospel? Well, because it's the very first messianic prophecy and it refers to Satan's future demise at the hand of the Messiah. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we went over this last week, so all I'm going to do is I'm going to skim over this really fast. But you need to understand this before we move into what we want to look at tonight. All right? God promised to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between his seed and the woman's seed. The woman's seed refers to Jesus. We know that for two reasons. First of all, a woman doesn't have seed. The word seed in verse number 15 is translated from the Hebrew word zera, which means semen or sperm. And a woman doesn't have semen. Only a man does. So this is clearly implying that someday a Savior would be conceived supernaturally and would be born of a virgin. Secondly, the woman's seed is referred to as a person. Look back at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, do you see the personal pronoun in that verse? He shall bruise your head. He is the Hebrew word who. Who is a personal pronoun. If you declined this, it would decline in this manner. It's third person, masculine, singular, which tells us that the woman's seed refers to a person, more specifically a man, and that man is... Jesus Christ. So Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy of, of the coming Messiah. Someday, a man will be supernaturally conceived and born of a virgin. Because he's going to be born of a virgin, he won't partake of the inherited sin nature of Adam. And there will be an intense hatred between this supernatural man and the serpent, Satan. Now, why is there going to be enmity between the two? Because the serpent knows. This supernatural man is coming to destroy him. Therefore, the serpent will do all that he can to try and destroy him first. But God prophesies that he will only succeed in bruising his heel. The Messiah, on the other hand, will crush the serpent's head, will destroy him. So this verse is the very first record of the gospel. 
And many of the prophecies in the Old Testament and the New Testament will refer back to this. That's why in the book of Isaiah, it says there will be a sign. The virgin will conceive. And of course, they talk about his name being Emmanuel. The interesting thing about it is, there is a definite article before the word virgin. The King James Version doesn't put it in there. But that definite article tells us that this is referring back to a specific woman. To a, to a prophecy before this. It's talking about the virgin, not a virgin. So all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, a lot of the prophecies in the New Testament, they are actually going to refer back to the book of Genesis. That's why Genesis is one of the most important books in the entire Bible. So... This verse is the very first record of the gospel. And that's why it's referred to by scholars as the Protoangelium. Now, does that make sense? Everyone with me? Good. Because now we're going to go into new material. We're going to talk a little bit about seed theology. How many of you ever been taught on seed theology? It's not something that you probably learned in Sunday school. It's probably not something that a pastor gets up and preaches on unless they're a teacher. So I guess I'm one of the few that will get up and teach on it. But seed theology is found all through the scripture. So if you go to Bible college or you go to seminary, one of the things that you will cover is seed theology. Because the Bible is continually referring to this. And if you don't understand seed theology, you don't understand why certain things happened, why Jesus did certain things, why John the Baptist did. So we need to talk a little bit about seed theology. What is it? Well, seed theology refers to the struggle, the enmity between, between two groups of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. And it's all based on Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. In this passage of scripture, God promised to put enmity between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. Now, I want you to understand, God is not being repetitious because it sounds good. When he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he doesn't become repetitious because it sounds religious. And he goes further and says, and between your seed and her seed. No, no, no. Those are two different things. So you need to understand, in this passage of Scripture, God promised to put enmity between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. Now, who does the serpent represent? Yes, that's very important. Don't forget that. The serpent represents Satan. So God promised to put enmity between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. Satan's seed refers to his children. In other words, those who have his characteristics or traits. You see, the word seed literally means semen or sperm. But it can also be used as a metaphor to refer to a person's offspring. Riddell, Carol, myself, Doug, Steve are all seed of George Nolan. In other words, we are his offspring, his progeny. And we have many of his characteristics. So when we talk about Satan's seed, we're talking about his offspring, his children, those who have his characteristics because they've inherited them. I want you to turn to the book of John, chapter 8, verses 44 through 45. Now you need to understand that seed theology is very important in Judaism. At the time of Jesus Christ... Every Jew who went to the synagogue on a regular basis understood seed theology. It's based on Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. 
So we need to keep that in mind as we read John chapter 8, verses 44 through 45. Jesus was talking, and this is what he said. For you are the children of your father, the devil. Not physical children, but spiritual children. They are the, the spiritual seed of Satan. They have inherited his characteristics. And then he goes further. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. So when I tell the truth, you naturally don't believe me. So, those who haven't accepted Jesus Christ are considered to be Satan's offspring, his children. In other words, his seed, his spiritual seed. So we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. And God promised to put enmity between Satan's seed and the seed of the woman. Now, as we found out last week, the woman's seed refers to Jesus Christ. But Jesus is also said to have seed, or in other words, children, offspring, not physical children. This is not the Da Vinci Code. So when I say Jesus has seed also, I am not referring to physical children. I am referring to spiritual children. So he has what the Bible refers to as spiritual seed or seed. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 verse number 13. Just give you a few verses. He also said, who's he? He also said, I will put my trust in him. Who is I? Jesus. That is, I and the children of God, children God has given me. Now I want you to notice. Jesus said, I and the children God has given to me. Now, look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 10. This is part of the uh, suffering Messiah prophetical verses. We're all very familiar with it. We've all always gone to Isaiah chapter 53. It's very easy to see what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would have to do. And he fulfilled this to a T. Notice what Isaiah 53, 10 says. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, I've already told you, obviously this is talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah who will come. And it says that God will see Jesus' seed. Now, the word seed is translated from the same Hebrew word zerah, which literally means semen or sperm. But in this context, it's used as a metaphor. And it means children or offspring. But my point is this. Jesus is the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. That's very easy to prove, and I proved it last week. But through Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, he also has seed, spiritual seed. In other words, spiritual children. And his children are those who've accepted him as the Lord and Savior. They are born again. They are regenerated. What's a generation? A generation means that you are the children of someone. You have been produced. You've been generated. Does that make sense? Your offspring. Sometimes when you see three generations together, you see the grandmother, you see the mother, and you see the daughter. 
So what you see, there are three generations. This one produced this one, and this one produced this one. They generated. Well, when we are born again, we are regenerated. The word re means again. If I tell you to retry something, I mean try it again. If I tell you to redo something, I tell you to do it again. Well, the word regenerate means to do what? It means to produce again. To have offspring again. You see, before we're born again, we are all the seed of Satan. We've inherited that sin nature, the characteristics of the devil. But when we're born again, we are regenerated. And now we become the spiritual seed of Jesus. Does that make sense? And there's enmity between his seed, Jesus' seed, and Satan's seed. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, has a dual meaning. Let me say it again. Genesis 3, 15 has a dual meaning. When God said that he would put enmity between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, it means that Satan's offspring, his spiritual seed, will hate Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the woman's seed. So God is going to put enmity between the serpent's seed, those who are not born again, those who have not received Jesus Christ. He's going to put enmity between those and the woman's seed, which is Jesus Christ. That's the first meaning. But it also means that the children of Satan, the unrighteous, will hate the children of Jesus Christ, the righteous. In other words, those who are born again. And that is the second meaning. And that's why scholars say that Genesis 3.15 has a dual meaning. Now, this is a common theme throughout the Bible. That's why you must understand the book of Genesis to understand much of the rest of the Bible. I can't emphasize it enough. Genesis is probably the most important book in the entire Bible. With the exception of probably one of the Gospels which shows the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And that he is the Messiah. But the reason we say that, G that Genesis is probably the most important book in the Bible is because it explains so much. It explains why the world is the way it is. It explains why there's cancer. Why people die. It explains why there's evil. It explains why there's this tension. And it also explains why Muslim fanatics can, can actually fly airplanes into the Twin Towers and we still will allow... Or, unless enough people get upset, a mosque to be built on ground zero. But you let a Christian want to build a church there and they'd be all upset. Why? Seed theology, people. God said, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. That in, the word enmity means hate. And so there is a hate between these two groups. And that is a common theme throughout the Bible. Satan's seed hates Jesus' seed. There's enmity between the two groups. Now we see this all the way back in the beginning. We see it with Cain and Abel. We don't have enough time to study the story of Cain and Abel. But I want you to understand, Cain and Abel is a great example of seed theology. Satan's seed at enmity between Jesus' seed. And we'll go a little bit further and just say the righteous versus the unrighteous. I'm not going to go to Genesis to the story. I'm going to go to a New Testament interpretation of the story. Look with me, if you wouldn't, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. John, who's the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
and who's always writing on love, notice what he has to say about the story of Cain and Abel. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. Now, do you see the connection to seed theology? Cain belonged to the evil one and Abel to God. And the reason Cain killed Abel is because he was unrighteous and he hated his brother for being righteous. So there was enmity between the two of them. And there's example after example throughout the Bible illustrating the enmity between these two groups, Satan's seed and Christ's seed. From the very beginning when Satan thought he had an ally with Eve, God comes in and he sets the serpent straight. And the serpent represents Satan. He says, I'm going to put enmity, enmity, enmity between you and her. Between your seed and her seed. And then he goes and explains why that enmity is there. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. And as soon as he realizes that God's going to send a supernatural Messiah to destroy him, immediately he's out to destroy the Messiah and anyone that's linked to the kingdom of God. And that's why you have this enmity. And it's all talking about seed theology. And this also explains why the world hates Christians. Turn to John 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. I want you to understand that that's strong words. The word hate is the Greek word meseo. It means to passionately hate. To be livid about something. To hate so much that you'll kill. And of course we see that with Satan. He is a murderer from the beginning. And this is why Jesus is constantly saying that. Why is he saying that? Because he's going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. Seed theology. It all goes back there. The world hates Jesus just as God said it would in Genesis 3.15. And because we are his children, his seed, we are also hated. Wow. That's good. Now, how many of you have ever said or heard someone else make this comment? Well, we have a few bad seeds in our family. Anyone ever said that? Yeah. Or maybe you heard someone say, he's just a bad seed. I've heard that. Heard it all my life. We got a few bad seeds in my family. Every family has it. My mom likes to say it this way. She likes to say every family has a Lucille. Lucille was the bad seed in her family. But anyways, believe it or not, that figure of speech actually comes from seed theology. And it has biblical roots. What we mean when we say they're a bad seed is that uh, they're a bad person. They're no good. In fact, sometimes the reason we say it that way is because we're saying, you know, they were just that way from the day they were born. They were just a bad seed. Now, technically, that figure of speech is being taken out of context when it's used that way. 
And the reason it's taken out of context is because the Bible teaches that before we're born again, we're all Satan's seed. He's our father until we're born again. Now, you might be nice on the outside, but the truth of the matter is no one really knows what's on the inside of you. And many times you don't even know what's on the inside of you until you're put in certain situations. I'm reading a book called Auschwitz. Of course, it's about the Nazi concentration camp, and it's a little bit different. It's not just coming in and telling stories, but it's a person who worked for the BBC, and he actually went to do a documentary. And in the documentary, he wanted to make sure that he went and interviewed in 2004, because they're all beginning to die off, some of the guards who were the prison guards in Auschwitz. And here's the interesting thing that he found. Not one of them has a regret of, why they, of what they did. In fact, they would say, well, you know, we were told to do that, and that's what we had to do. And then when they t start talking about the atrocity and the sadistic behavior that happened, they would come and say, but you need to understand that, you know, that's what we believed, and, and then they get down to it. They deserved it. The Jews deserved it. Now, they've also come in, and they've talked to and interviewed people who lived through the concentration camp. And the person who, one of the people that they interviewed in this that I'm reading about, he made the comment that you don't know what's inside of you until you're put in that situation. He said, you think you won't kill another person until you're in that situation. You think that you'll be nice and share until you're in that situation. You think that you won't turn people in until you're in that situation. He said, you meet someone on the streets in a normal situation and they love you. They're nice. They'll help you out. You ask for directions. They might even walk three blocks and take you there. And you think, that's just the nicest person. But he said, I promise you, you put them in a concentration camp and you put them in a specific situation and what's really on the inside will come out. Now, sometimes we look at people and we think, you know, well, they're not Satan's seed. Look how nice they are. But the truth of the matter is every one of us, because of the atomic nature we are the spiritual seed of that, and Satan is the father. He's the one that brought it about. And until we are regenerated, we are not Jesus' seed. So technically, the figure of speech that we use is taken out of context when it's used in that way. When we say, he's a bad seed, or we have some bad seeds in our family. But... Those figures of speech all come from seed theology, and they're based on Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, understanding seed theology will give you great insight in some of the, into some of the things that Jesus said. And let me give you some examples. Turn with me, if you would, to the back book of Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read verse number 34. Oh, generation of vipers! How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. See, I kind of picture Jesus doing that. I don't see him going, oh, generation of vipers. I kind of think he got upset with them and he said, oh, generation of vipers. Now, we know what a viper is. What's a viper? Not just a snake, a what? A poisonous snake. Oh, yeah, not just a snake, a poisonous snake. Now, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees here, people. The religious people. The, quote, Christians of the day. Now, I know there's no such thing as Christianity at that time. Christianity hasn't even formed. It first began as a sect of Judaism. I understand all that. But I'm just trying to put you in their train of thought. They were the good people of the day. 
And Jesus comes along and he says, oh, generation of vipers. I want you to underline that word generation. Oh, generation of vipers. That word generation is translated from the Hebrew word genema, and it means offspring. So Jesus is calling them the serpent's offspring. Now, they knew exactly what Jesus meant by that and what he was implying. What he was doing was calling them the serpent's seed. And he was implying that he was the woman's seed, and that's why they were attacking him. In fact, do you know why Jesus actually called them, O generation of vipers? Anyone know the context of the story? Well, the reason he called them, O generation of vipers, is because they had just got through accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Look, look at Matthew 12, 24, just 10 verses before this. Notice what they said. But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, this is what they said. No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. So in essence, what Jesus was saying was, you're accusing me of getting my power from the devil? You're the serpent seed, and that's why you're attacking me. It's because there's enmity between the serpent seed, who is you, and the woman seed, me. See, the whole reason he called them a generation of vipers is because of seed theology. Judaism taught uh, seed theology. There was a reason why Cain slew Abel. There was a reason why God chose Jacob and not Esau. There's a reason for all of these things. And Jesus comes along, and when he talks to the Pharisees, the religious class, he says, oh, generation of vipers, and they know immediately what he's saying. You're the serpent's seed. And they know what he's implying. The reason you're attacking me is because of what Genesis 3.15 says. God put enmity between your seed and my seed. And people, this happens all through the New Testament. You think, why did he say that? Was that a figure of speech? Well, yes, but because it was a figure of speech of, this, of, of uh, seed theology. If someone was evil, they were what? An offspring of the devil. Now, notice what ma The devil spawned. Anyways, we hear that too, right? Seed theology. Look at Matthew 23, 33. You serpents! You generation of vipers! How can you escape the damnation of hell? People, it all goes back to seed theology. You're either the seed of Satan or you're the seed of Jesus Christ. And there's always going to be enmity between the two. People, it blows my mind. But during the thousand-year period known as the millennium when Jesus sets his kingdom up here on the earth, if you remember, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire alive. People, that's good because that tells you that the second death, when we're thrown into the lake of fire, it tells us a thousand years later when they throw the devil into the lake of fire, it says where the, the beast and the false prophet, and what's interesting, it says are, present tense. They didn't burn up after a thousand years, and they are human beings. Listen to me very carefully. The Bible teaches the resurrection of the righteous and it teaches the resurrection of the damned. Your spirit, when you die, will be separated from your body. If you're a Christian, it goes to heaven. If you're not a Christian, it goes to hell. But one day, 
If you're not a Christian at the great white throne judgment, your body will be resurrected. It will be joined to your spirit. You'll stand before God. You'll be judged for everything you've done because you rejected Jesus Christ paying the punishment for your sin. Therefore, you're going to have to pay the punishment. You will be thrown into the lake of fire and you will not burn up. That's what the Bible teaches. But here's what's interesting. At the end of the thousand years, it says it is necessary. That's what it says in the Greek. For Satan to be loose for a little bit. And can you believe it? He will still be able to deceive a few. Well, not really a few, a lot. People who are born during the millennium because there'll be people who are flesh and blood and they'll be having children. We've read all of that. We've studied it. And then Satan's going to be let loose for a little while and they're going to come and they're going to march against Jesus at Jerusalem. Stupid! And of course, fire comes down, destroys them all. But you know what? Why would they do that? See, theology all goes back to Genesis 3.15 and the Adamic nature. When Adam and Eve fell, the Adamic nature came in and we became the seed of Satan. And what that seed means is talking about spiritual. We're not physical descendants of Satan. He did not impregnate any women and it came. What we mean is spiritually, we take the same characteristics because of the Adamic nature. And because of that, there will always be enmity between Satan's seed and the woman's seed, which is Jesus, and Jesus' seed. That enmity will always remain. 